0: The drug development process is no longer just for industry. Join Global Genes for the annual Rare Drug Development Symposium to connect with rare disease stakeholders in the drug development space and learn what role you can play to advance treatments and cure for rare diseases. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, this year's symposium will be a two-day interactive virtual event, June 11th to 12th. For more information... Go to globalgenes.org RDDS. That's globalgenes.org RDDS. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Chris Austin calls himself an evangelist for collaboration when it comes to rare disease drug development. The director of the National Institutes of Health's National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences said it's essential for rare disease advocates to look beyond their own diseases to recognize commonalities between their conditions and others to find opportunities to collaborate. We spoke to Austin ahead of his keynote address at this year's Global Genes Rare Drug Development Symposium, June 11th, about why collaboration is critical to accelerating research, how broadly organizations should think about collaborations, and how patient groups can best work with NCATS to leverage the resources it has. Chris, thanks for joining us. Great to be with you. We're going to talk about efforts to accelerate rare disease drug development and the role collaboration and and working across diseases can play. Perhaps we can begin with the unique challenges rare disease drug development face. What do the small populations for diseases mean to drug development and, and what challenges emerge as a result?
1: Well, they can be most succinctly summarized by the fact that rare diseases uh, have rare investigators working on them. That is, there are not many investigators working on each rare disease, uh, which makes the understanding and development of therapeutics for each rare disease, particularly challenging. And then of course, when one comes up with a candidate therapeutic, one needs to find enough patients to test the therapeutic in, and even in a large country like the United States, it's it's usually uh, uh, challenging or impossible to do a properly powered, meaningful trial uh, in the United States. So they're almost always uh, multiple country trials. Uh, they're also uh, it's also often impossible to do a conventional, randomized, controlled crossover trial. You know the gold standard, which serves us very well and has served us very well over time in common diseases like hypertension or heart disease or some forms of common cancer. It's just impossible to do that in, uh, in rare diseases. that just aren't enough patients. And often it's very difficult or ethically un, uh, untenable to do a placebo-controlled trial. So the kinds of uh, statistical approaches uh, required for uh, uh, rare diseases have been quite different. Uh, you know, interestingly though, uh, you know, as we over the last 10 or 15 years have talked more and more about personalized medicine or segmented medicine um, that is smaller population trials uh, as a result of the segmenting of large uh, 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 Previously, large uh, prevalence diseases into smaller subsets. All of that work for rare diseases has been directly applicable to studies in personalized medicine. So, in this and so many other ways, rare disease research is leading the way.
0: You've been a, a great advocate for collaboration. The urgency rare disease advocates often feel and, and the intense focus they bring to their task can often blind them to the importance that collaboration can play in, in working across disease areas. There, there's a tendency in the community to think of their uniqueness rather than their commonalities. What's the case you'd make for people collaborating across diseases?
1: Yeah, this is extraordinarily important for progress. You know, I, I, I am certainly uh, sympathetic and empathetic with uh, patients and parents who uh, have uh, these often quite um, devastating diseases in their family or themselves, and you know all of our tendencies uh, is uh, tend to go in the direction that all of us, at least I tend to do, which is if you want to do something right, do it yourself. But in this case, as in so many else other aspects of life, that does not work well. Uh, And and the reason is a couple things. First of all, though, you're absolutely right that disease advocates um, and patients tend to see uh, their differences, the differences between them and other diseases as paramount. What we see from the the standpoint of looking across all 7,000 diseases is that they have much, much more in common than they do of uh, 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 then 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 what separates them what differentiates them uh, particularly when it comes to the translational issues that is you know developing a diagnostic or developing a treatment and getting it shown to be useful and uh, approved and eventually uh, have access to all the patients uh, all the patients get access to it those issues are absolutely generic across rare diseases the other thing that that i, I always emphasize is that you know one of the major lessons of biology and, and medicine in the last 30 years has been uh, that that unlike what i was told when i was in training 35 years ago that you know each of these diseases is separate and there will be different genes for every function that uh, that the human body uh, engages in uh, uh, it turns out that mother nature is the original repurposer and uh, genes and pathways are reused over and over and over again in different contexts to serve different functions in the same body. And so, what that's telling us is that biology is telling us that there are commonalities among these disorders that we would never suspect clinically. And, and that if we, if we design our research that way, we will make much more much more rapid progress because it's following nature's guide uh, that that we've that we've learned over the last number of decades
0: are there good examples you could point to of how research into one area of rare disease illuminated another or how researching a, a group of related diseases paid off
1: yeah well, we see this over and over and over again in our uh, Rare Disease Clinical Research Network, RDCRN, uh, that uh, you actually cannot get funded uh, for that program uh, unless two things are the case. One is that you have at least one patient advocacy group as a research partner, and that's a separate issue we might want to talk about, but, but relevant to your question in this case, you can't just study a single disease. You have to tell us what is your uh, uh, organizing principle, your uh, biological uh, organizing principle, uh, which you are going to use to study multiple diseases. And, and, and sometimes, you know, there, there are some of these networks that, that study a, a group of genes. Uh, which are involved. Uh, uh, you may have heard things like like rasopathies. Uh, these are a group of about 10 different disorders, uh, all caused by uh, abnormalities of the RAS pathway. Um, Some of them are uh, focused on on, uh, organelles, like mitochondrial disorders. Uh, Some of them are focused on a cell type or or an organ, all uh, uh, diseases common to, to those cell types or those organs. And what we see over and over and over again is that by studying multiple rare diseases at whatever level of organization, we're able to rapidly apply the lessons in one uh, to to the lessons in another again because we're following the lead of Mother Nature uh, and and recognizing the commonalities that these have and of course the thing that we may want to talk about later and is a big deal um, now in COVID as it is in rare diseases all the time is the issue of repurposing uh, repurposing drugs and and that term, of course, applies to uh, the, the, the the observation over uh, many, 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 many uh, decades that a, a therapeutic, a drug, op- applied or approved for a very specific reason, for a very specific disease, often turns out to be a, a, a very useful for apparently unrelated diseases. And the only reason that works is because of the principle that we're talking about. So, so I'm always um, encouraging patient advocates uh, and researchers, frankly, who tend to do the same thing, to say, you know, look, don't just look under the lamppost. Look, look at the whole parking lot. And, 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 and the answer you're looking for may be 10 feet away, but you haven't looked.
0: Well, how should patient organizations think about potential collaborations? How broadly should they be looking?
1: I guess the first, the first way to put this is uh, to – I would urge patient groups and scientists to orient themselves to look for those connections first. We, we don't – science has traditionally not done this, and, and, and I was not trained to do this. I was trained to do the opposite. So I had to learn this just like all the, the scientists and patient advocates that I work with, uh, but I stuck with it because it's so much more productive so first of all you have to orient yourself uh, uh, to look for those opportunities and uh, as the old saying goes you know chance favors the prepared mind uh, and 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 so you recognize these commonalities when you are attuned to them and i would think as broadly as you can uh, but but do it in a way that makes biological sense um, except for the potential for repurposing because repurposing, especially if one, and again, we could talk about this later, repurposing is a totally uh, a, 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 a non-hypothesis driven, serendipitous enterprise. And that's one of the reasons it can work. But, but outside of that, once we understand, once a patient uh, advocacy group understands what the fundamental defect, the biochemical defect, genetic defect, cellular defect, whatever it is, in their disorder, that tells you you need to look for other, other disorders which share that commonality, that, that common gene dysfunction, pathway dysfunction, uh, type of the cell dysfunction, cell type dysfunction. And I can guarantee them they will take leapfrog, uh, uh, steps to, um, uh, to understand, um, uh, w- what, W- w- what their disease is due to and how it might be treated, you know. And this, of course, has been incredibly enabled by the invention of the internet uh, and now social uh, uh, networking and uh, all the things that we do every day. You know, back in the mid '80s, early '90s, uh, when I was in training, uh, we had we had we had U.S. postal mail. And we had phone calls that didn't have answering machines. And so so you can imagine doing this back in that era was very, very difficult. Uh, it's not now.
0: Well, what are the impediments to seeing greater collaboration across rare diseases? Are they technical? Are they financial? Are they cultural?
1: Uh, they're all of those things. Uh, you know, I, one of the things that I um, – I, I uh, work on with my colleagues here at the NIH uh, is that the the entire research enterprise is is organized orthogonally to how Mother Nature thinks. I mean, we really in are in the what I sometimes call the Vesalius era, who was an early anatomist uh, several centuries ago, who first defined well, there's this organ and that organ. And, and you think about the NIH structure. We have 27 institutes, each of which is you know roughly uh, equivalent to a, a medical specialty. So you know we have a we have a heart institute and a nose institute and a skin institute. And believe it or not, in 19 in 2020, we have a brain institute and a mind institute. They're different. And and that that while that seems trivial. The, 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 it reinforces the very silos that impede progress, in my view. And, and, and everybody wants to do the right thing, but their incentives are driven by the silos. So the incentives have to change uh, and, and it's very difficult to do that. And we're, um, we, we have this happen all the time because rare diseases rarely, rarely affect just one organ. So if you have uh, for instance, pick a random disease, myotonic dystrophy, that is a neuromuscular disorder that can affect the muscle, skeletal muscle, uh, can affect the nerves, can affect the heart, cardiomyopathy, uh, can af- can give cataracts, affects the eye. So, which institute do you apply to, and how do you get support? Because everybody's going to say, "Oh, that's not our problem; it's their problem," and and this is a very real issue in in the in the in the um. Uh, in the rare disease space, you see the same thing in in researchers or, or patient advocacy groups trying to raise money, because for for obvious and understandable reasons, you know a lot of that money comes from parents, and and it's very hard to raise money for a disorder that that may not be obviously related to the to the disorder that your child has, and so it's it's a uh, it's a it's it's a it's a financial problem. It's a cultural problem. It's the way our research system uh, is organized. Um, you know that's why. You know NCATS. A few years ago, we we decided we needed to just uh, address this head on, and uh, so we very publicly moved from a stature of. Studying and developing therapies for one disease at a time. We don't do that anymore. Everything we do is many diseases at a time, Uh, both because that's, again, the way Mother Nature works and because that will dramatically improve, uh, increase the pace of progress.
0: What advice would you have for a patient organization or a a researcher that wanted to work with NCATS and leverage the resources? that you have?
1: Oh, great question. Um, So we're we're a very unusual organization by design, and uh, every project we do is a collaboration with somebody. Every project. And a number of those projects are actually with patient advocacy groups. I have had many cases where patient advocates have come to me or uh, uh, other other, uh, members of the scientific staff and have said, hey, look, uh, I have this problem, uh, I have this uh, uh, this interest, I want to uh, uh, frequently develop a therapeutic or understand it better or what have you. Um, uh, Can you help? And in most circumstances, the answer would be, who are you? Uh, no, 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 I only talk to scientists. Mm-hmm. But we actually often do it the other way around. We say, look, of course, we will develop a, a collaborative arrangements with you directly, but almost always you, you need to have some some scientific folks, folks who are knowledgeable about the disease, and we form a three way collaboration uh, between the patient advocacy group and MCATs and the usually academic or small company uh, that, that's that's working on the disorder, and we find that that model is is. Is really potent, and 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 when people ask me wh- why, what do patient advocates bring? Because you have to realize that most scientists are—I uh, know this sounds silly—they're afraid of patients. They're, they're not trained medically. I mean, I'm, I'm a doctor, so I'm, I'm not afraid of patients. But but most of my colleagues who are trained in the lab—they they, they don't know how to talk to patients. They're afraid they're going to get them, in the, they're going to get in the way and. All these things. What we find is the opposite. Patient advocates bring expertise, they bring focus, and they bring urgency, and sometimes they bring a little little money too. Uh, but but the first three are really what 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 what, what drives these projects. Uh, it's it's the focus, it's the urgency, uh, and and it's the, uh, uh, the 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 expertise of knowing the scientific community that we may not that on that disease and we may not necessarily know at Encas call us email me I, you know i we want to hear from people so and i get these all the time so just uh, you'll have my email address i hope uh, after this and uh, um uh podcast but it, i'm very easy to find if you just google me and, and and cats you'll find my email address
0: we're at this moment of accelerating technological innovation that's starting to reshape drug discovery and development from. The use of artificial intelligence to digital health technologies. What role do you see technology playing in discovery and development? Where do you see the biggest opportunities for accelerating progress?
1: Well, I, it's across the board. Um, I One of the areas that we're working hardest on is actually not therapeutics. It's, it's the step before this its diagnostics uh, or di- proper diagnosis as all patient advocates know uh, the the diagnostic odyssey is very real um, uh, you know n- n- general numbers are hard to come by but but uh, frequently patients will take uh, in their families uh, will will go through a series of of uh, specialists uh, sometimes for 2 5 10 15 years until they get an, a, a, an accurate diagnosis. And, you know, again, when I was in training, th- th- that was it was unavoidable because we didn't know what caused these diseases. There, there were only about two dozen diseases, the molecular basis of which was known. Now that number is over 6,500. In the last 35 years, we've gone from two dozen to 6,500. What that means is, that most rare diseases have been defined in the medical literature and it is possible to test for them. The reason that the diagnostic odyssey exists is that we don't test for them. So we've gone from can't to don't. In our mind, that is unconscionable. But again, our system is one disease at a time focused, and so this, this diagnostic odyssey persists. So we're doing a lot of work. Uh, uh, within, within NIH, within our partners here, and with with uh, uh, partners all over the world, actually, uh, uh, to develop uh, a a way to identify these patients much more rapidly. And the advent of electronic health records has made that possible. Uh, and and uh, 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 machine learning, uh, natural language processing of electronic health records notes, that kind of thing. Uh, so that's the first thing. Second. You know, when it comes to therapeutics, um, your listeners may not realize that this is a nerd point, and apologies for that for the uh, folks who are not as familiar with drug development. But 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 the the traditional drugs uh, uh, are actually in a relatively limited uh, uh, chemical space, and so uh, so we need to do a lot of work uh, to reach the the genome space that is that, is, that, that uh, causes uh, most rare diseases. You've, I'm sure you've heard this number that 95% of rare diseases have no FDA-approved treatment at all. And in fact, if you one of the reasons that that repurposing campaigns often fail in rare diseases is because those drugs were developed for a very narrow slice of of biology for you know common diseases over the last you know 50 60 years. And so we need to get into novel space of uh, chemical space in order to do that. You know, I must say one of my most uh, one of the things that I'm most excited about is actually the advent of genetic therapies as a result. And and again apologize for the for the for the nerd point here, uh, but but we know that most rare diseases are on some level genetic diseases. They're, they're, they're misspellings that are inherited from one generation to another. Not all, but, but most are. And, and so what that tells you is that, that, uh, that it is completely predictable uh, what, what the treatment potentially would be if you had a genetic treatment to correct that in the patient. And uh, uh, I and my colleagues have been working on gene therapy since I was back when I, again, I started to keep talking about when I was in training, but back then in the the late 80s, we were working on antisense and uh, uh, carrying new uh, drugs uh, in viruses into uh, in, in, into into uh, uh, in, in this case, over animal models. But the but the point is that it, we thought it would be really easy to deliver these uh, 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 to animals and then ultimately to people. That turned out to be really, really, really hard. But we've solved a lot of those. And by we, I don't mean us particularly. I mean the whole community has solved a lot of those delivery problems. So we can dis- we can pretty easily figure out what the target is because we know what the mutation is. And now we're beginning to solve the the delivery problem. So we're doing just as an example, uh, we're working on something called Pave GT, as means stands for, uh, paving the way to gene therapy. Looking at a single viral vector, uh, you think of it as a suitcase that can carry lots of different clothes, and uh, these vectors can uh, they're just engineered viruses, uh, and they can carry lots of different genes. And you can swap them out and swap them in. And then that same suitcase can be used to shuttle any number of genes into a people with any number of diseases. The problem is the system does not support that because most companies are focused on one disease, most investigators are focused on one disease. We are not. We're focusing on the general case. How do we develop this technology? So it is absolutely generalizable, useful and put all those data for a, a group of diseases that we're working on with this model into the public domain, including all of the all of the the uh, correspondence that we have with the FDA, so that this is a cookbook which patient advocate foundations and their scientific colleagues uh, uh, can use. We're doing the same thing in ASO, antisense oligonucleotides. Those of you who followed the, the Milosin story will know what I'm talking about. Uh, mm-hmm. And this is a, uh, it's a, a similar phenomenon. I've actually begun to use the word, believe it or not, I've begun to use the term just-in-time gene therapy because I really think this is a reality uh, where, where if we had a system established when a little girl lines in like Mila comes in and once her diagnosis is known, everything else, all the translational stuff uh, would already be done and we could just swap in one and swap out the other. Uh, that's becoming a reality, and that will be. If this works, this will be absolutely transformational.
0: Any sense of timing on that?
1: Well, it's the the PAGT project that we're doing, and again, your listeners can go to our website and and find out about this. We're we're doing that that study right now on four different diseases. Uh, two of, of one sort and two of another, to, because we want to make sure it's generalizable. Uh, and we're working very closely with the FDA on this. Uh, just today, I had another call uh, about the nonsense oligonucleotide uh, uh, issue. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's it's always, as the old saying goes, it's always difficult to predict, especially when it's about the future. Uh, but uh, but I'm really optimistic that within five years this will be, uh, dare I say, a commonplace.
0: The COVID-19 pandemic has affected all aspects of life, but it's had a a particular impact on biomedical research and and clinical trials. Any sense of the extent of that effect in the rare disease space, and do you see it having any lasting change on the way studies are done?
1: Yeah, COVID is, as you say, COVID has affected um, virtually everything we do in the biomedical research space and seemingly every other space. Um, The rare disease community has been hit particularly hard by this because many rare diseases by their nature uh, uh, mean that uh, the, the patient's are, are particularly vulnerable. They have immune system disorders, or lung disorders, or heart disorders, or kidney disorders, or any other gut disorders that make them particularly vulnerable to uh, infection or the uh, uh, deleterious effects of COVID infection. So uh, it's it's been a disproportionate effect on the rare disease community. Uh, it, it also has had a major effect, as you say, on on research studies. Most institutions have stopped, including my own, including NIH, have stopped all studies that are either, uh, that are not uh, 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 required for uh, o- urgently ongoing life. And that means uh, infectious disease, COVID studies, and ongoing cancer studies. Everything else has been stopped. And as any rare disease patient knows, time is life. and and these three months, we're never gonna get back. And and that pains us greatly here. In, in order to uh, help position the community to bounce back as rapidly as possible and to, to, to allow us to help the community do that, we need to understand what the issues are in, in the rare disease community beyond the anecdotes that we hear from individual people. So we actually, two weeks ago, Uh, started a uh, a survey, which I hope many of your listeners will go to, and you you just Google RDCRN rare disease survey, uh, you'll find this. Um, It asks about all of these issues, medical effects, uh, uh, effects of clinical trials, or getting care, access to treatments, uh, all of these stress, uh, all these kinds of things. Um, we are aiming for five thousand responses. We have two thousand already, um, so we hope people will will go to this. Um, I, and the other thing, as you probably know, is that most fundamental labs, including um, our own at NIH, have been closed, uh, literally closed and locked for the last three months. And uh, and and that, uh, that it's not only that the work stops; it's that um, you know, you can think about it like not driving a car for six for three months. You know, your car may not start again, uh, and and the the research is going to take quite a while to get up and going again. If you think about all the mouse models and other, uh, uh you know, induced pluripotent stem cell models uh, that take a long time to make, so we'll get through this. But it but it has been a big hit for for everyone.
0: You mentioned repurposing earlier. Be Because of the urgency that has come with finding treatments for COVID-19, repurposing has been really embraced. Has there been learnings from what's been done in efforts to find treatments for rare diseases that have been applicable here?
1: Um, I I think um, not not so much for COVID-19, except to say that – the, the learnings of how to do repurposing which were uh, to a great degree worked out in the rare disease space have been applied in a major way to uh, apply to 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 address the covid uh, pandemic you know but i i one of the things that i'm really hoping and i'm hoping i'm not as you can probably tell, I'm, I'm, I'm an inveterate optimist, and I, I, hope, I'm, I hope I'm confirmed in, in, in this case as being so, that, you know, what I've seen in the last three months is more focus on commonality, more focus on sharing of data and resources, more sharing between public and private sector. Between members of the private sector, between members of the public sector, uh, and we at NCATS, who are, uh, who are, uh, perhaps it's best to call us evangelists for collaboration. We really are, uh, because translation is a team sport. It cannot be done effectively or efficiently by any one organization or person. Those things which we knew were possible and were not happening for cultural reasons or or other non-scientific reasons, social science reasons, those things have gone away. All of a sudden, all these behaviors that we've hoped to see are now happening. And and so that's why you see the kind of rapid headway uh, that uh, that we do now. But think about why that is, and think about why this has not happened, for instance, in, in rare diseases. The reason is that all of a sudden, the entire public has the same urgency for developing a therapeutic that every rare disease advocate has every morning when they wake up. This is the first thing they think about, and it is extremely urgent to them. For the most part, it is very hard to get this across to uh, what, uh, my colleagues you know, here or uh, Policy makers here in, in Washington, you know, in the rare disease advocacy community is incredible at, at getting this across, but but they have a visceral knowledge of the urgency, which I find most people do not have. They have it now. They understand what rare disease advocates deal with every day, and and I'm hoping these behaviors, their the sense of urgency, the, the, the sense of collaboration, that we can go so much farther together. That once we have demonstrated to ourselves as a community that it really does work better, faster, more effectively, more than enough credit to go around, that these behaviors will continue. We'll see, but I'm optimistic. If
0: you'd like to hear more from Chris and learn about rare disease drug development, you can join Global Genes and the Penn Medicine Orphan Disease Center for the Rare Drug Development Symposium online, June 11th and 12th. You can find details on the Global Genes website. Christopher Austin, Director of the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. Chris, thanks so much for your time today.
1: Thank you so much, Danny. It's been great being with you.
0: Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org.